Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. And on Facebook at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Our guest this week is be one of the coolest men in musical theater. I agree with that. Author of, the, <laughs> author of the wonderful book Everything Was Possible, where he was a production assistant on the original production of Follies and his current position. He is the president of the Richard Rodgers and Hammerstein organization, among many, many... Many, 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 many other titles that you have, Ted. We have Ted Chapin joining us today. Hi, Ted. Ted, thanks for being with us today. (laughs) My pleasure. Yeah, you are a gentleman who grew up completely immersed in the arts. We all know your titles and what you do now, but I think a lot of people don't realize that you were growing up going to the theater probably from a very, very young age. Yeah. Um, Your father was a major, major... I mean, you can't even put one hat on him. I mean, he, just like you, he did, did so many things for the arts with the Metropolitan Opera, Columbia Records, all of this. What all did your father do? I mean, yes, it, it's absolutely true that I grew up in New York City, and my father, Skylar Chapin, had a, a series of unbelievable jobs. Unbelievable for, for a kid growing up being interested in this world. Um, he, he became the head of the Masterworks Division of Columbia Records in 1959. Right. Two things were happening. A bunch of really cool cast albums were being made, but also stereo had come in and really taken hold. So he had Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic, mm-hmm. Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra, and George Sell and the Cleveland Orchestra all re-recording classical music in stereo. Wow. Um, and, and years later, somebody who ran what became that, what that division became, said that those became the profit centers of that division because they were to this day they're incredibly good recordings yeah. I and mean, those are people in their stride anyway yeah, no, from, yeah. from there he went to be the first vice president of programming at Lincoln Center when only one building had opened so I was able to you know see these buildings as they opened one right, after the other right. Um, I mean, it's funny, I was at the, what's now called the Coke Theater, I still think at the New York State Theater, yes. the other day, and, and I, I was sort of giving a little talk to the person I was with about the theater, that I said, this theater was made for dance, Yeah, you know, and that's what that's it was, it. so yeah. when they started to sing and talk from the stage, they had problems. And everyone complains about the acoustics, but yeah. it's like, well, for, that's why, it was meant for dance. Never, never designed for that. Anyway, yeah. so, so it, 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 it was... I've said this before, which is that my father offered this world to my brothers and me. It was never a given. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mother was a member of the Steinway family, Mm -hmm. so that's not too far removed from it. Um, and I, you know, it's it's just it's sort of by osmosis that you pick up an interest. And I, I think it was the cast album of Bye Bye Birdie that got me really focused on musicals. Really? Yeah. What about why why that score? Well, because it's so cool. Number one, because yes. I was, you know, I was sort of the age that the kid in it was. Right. It was about rock and roll, which I knew because I was listening to it. Yep. Um, it also has probably the best set of orchestrations um, of energetic orchestrations. You know this. Guy, Robert yes. Ginsler, who really was yes. a magical guy. I mean, he made, I think he made the energy of musical theater legit. You know, there were some people, you know, some of those sort of razzle dazzle shows that kind of, you know, seem perhaps on the cheesy side. Yes. But Ginsler, I mean, there's a harp in the overture of Bye Bye Birdie. I want to say a the name one more time Robert Ginsler. Ginsler. Robert yes. Ginsler. He's very special. He, he didn't have like, 
dozens and dozens of works. I mean, he probably ghosted on a lot of, of he shows. He did, but, but, but in the early but, 60s, he did a whole series right in, in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Oh. Um, All American, which is the follow-up to, yes. to Bye Bye Birdie. He did Bravo Giovanni, one of my favorite bad shows, but I love <laughs> yes. it. Um, and, and he died very quickly. He was, it was one, yes. I think it's the... the 62, 63 season that he did like four or five shows and then died. Yeah. Oh my God. You know who's, you should talk to who's a huge Robert Gensler fan is Jonathan Tunick. Yes, um, we we're working on. We're working on. Oh yeah, get him. him. A couple times. Yeah. His his charts, Jonathan's charts that he wrote for Cabin in the Sky, for encores. Oh yeah, that I saw was on that. Yeah, last week. Yeah. That's Fantastic. Ginsler. There's a lot of Ginsler in oh, there. Oh really? There is Jazzy, the saxophones and like trio. You know, yeah. like a real. Yeah, just when good I, fills. When I, com- when I complimented Jonathan, he said, "Yeah, I'm the last of the Hepcats." <laughs> Yeah, totally. It's true. <laughs> I love that. Do, do you remember any shows that you saw? Well, Bye Bye Birdie was the first show I saw. It was. Birdie was the first was one. the first show I saw with Derwood Kirby and Gretchen Weiler. Okay, it wasn't the original. No, but okay. Hey, but Gretchen was, Weiler is still pretty impressive. No, it was impressive. And my father, till the day he died, told the story that at intermission I turned to him and I said, where has this been all my life? I was yeah, 11. Wow. Um, I was not old enough. That's the, you know clearly right. The but, but you also probably heard a lot of classical music as well. Yeah, growing you know up. I, I, the concerts I went to opera. I went to the the, the um, uh, Tales of Hoffman at the Old Met. Mm-hmm. Oh I mean, belying my age, but you know what? The more the older I get, the, and the, first of all, the less I feel how old I am. The more what I actually experienced is pretty astonishing. I went down and. <laughs> took a home video of them destroying the old Metropolitan Opera House, oh, which wow. I then gave to the Met. I thought, yeah. put this in your archives. I'm not sure anybody ever did exactly this. Just yeah. walked around with my little eight millimeter camera taking pictures of them. You know, they had taken, they actually took the theater down kind of in V's. They took the walls in the middle down and left the corners. Yeah. So these great shots through the stage door and you can see onto where the stage was. That's oh. incredible. Anyway, but that's, that's gr- we got to see those. That's growing up in New York and being fascinated by it. And the, the really lucky thing for me, I realized early on that a phrase that's now become part of the lexicon I wanted to be in the room where it happened I wanted I wanted to be part of it I didn't want to be a this or a that I just wanted to be there Right. So I realized early on wow. that being a production assistant, you know, getting coffee and doing whatever anybody wanted um, was a way to be there and really be in, you know, in the action. And see it all going on. Yeah, and the yeah. creation. And so it. that's why I started. And then, frankly, I used the connection that my father, uh, you know, provided. Yes, of course. Um, so the, the first show that I ever worked on was at Lincoln Center in the uh, summer festival. Um, and I just loved doing that. And then in those days, in those days, directors didn't have assistants yeah. uh. that were uh, had any authority. So I became sort of the assistant to these directors, which meant taking notes, right? You know, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. What an well, how old were you when you had your first? When you kind of went after this? Yeah. First, I mean, the first job what I was had when I was sixteen, the unknown soldier the unknown and his soldier? wife by uh, Peter Ustinov, Ustinov. directed by yeah. John Dexter, the infamous John Dexter. I was going to say, what was it like working with the infamous John Dexter? Well, he was fine with me. Um, and I think partly because my father was at Lincoln Center, and so did I was right. I pre- perhaps should I say slightly protected. Yeah. Yes. Um, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> right. And, it was just... But it, he was fascinating, and, and one of the reviews for that show said he breathes theater the way the rest of us breathe air, because there is that thing in the in the wow. British. 
mm-hmm. you know, the, the Trevor Nunns, yep. the, you know, the John Keards, the people like that who just understand how the, theatrical, um, the woman who, who, who yeah. uh, whatever, Marinelli, who, who did the Curious Incident, is oh, another yeah. one in that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's almost their life, you know. It, they just, it, 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 it's, it's a kind of theatrical imagination that we don't have. We have things that they don't have, but this is one thing. that. Yes. that and so he was, he was that way with this show. Right. Um, so he was great with me. He did, he did urge me not to go to school, but to come to England and to work in the theater. And that's where the alarm bells went off. And I said, <laughs> don't probably think that's what I want to do. Yeah. Right. And then Rothschilds? Yeah, well, I just continued to do this, this gophering, offering myself as a gopher. In I figured that college was, classes? Yeah, summertime. Like, Some, yeah. I'd look at Variety and figure out what show was going into rehearsal in the summer. I'd say, Dad, who do you know on this? So that was, that was your end. I was curious. Yeah. Like, how do you yeah. just be like, dear Sheldon, I mean, can what, I please come? <laughs> the ironic thing is the one that I had to push the hardest for was Follies. Um, because there was a skittishness, not so much on Hal Prince's part, but on Ruth Mitchell, his you know, his, his partner, you know, partner yeah, yeah. about it. And... And I, I've said this, I have to be discreet about this because I don't want people to think this is the way I go about life. But I was in college, at Connecticut College, yeah. at a time when colleges were, were in trouble. And the best thing you could do in college is solve a problem that they didn't know they had. <laughs> um, so by saying to the college, listen, I want to do this. I want to observe this creation of a new American musical. I will write a report, and I want you to give me two courses worth of credit for it in wow. the second half of my junior year. I will then overpoint in my senior year so I can graduate on time. And they bought it. You know, and, I tell, and, they were, they were, and I said to Hal that the, the, the college was wildly enthusiastic about my doing this, which was a little – and told the, 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 the college that Hal Prince was enthusiastic about my doing this. <laughs> when Alexis Smith was on the cover of Time magazine after Follies opened that spring, I did become a little bit of a celebrity among the administration. That they ca- it's yes, like, well, indeed. this guy seems to be on to he something that we didn't happened. know. Yeah. 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 Why did you want to work on Follies? Because I saw a company, and it blew my mind. Mind. It blew my mind because there was something about the original production of Company that was, yes, a musical, and I'd by that point come to admire musicals and right. like musicals, but it was something contemporary. It was theatrically dazzling in a way that I'd never seen anything. I mean, the way Michael Bennett staged the numbers in and around the set yeah. um, and then allowed for a couple of number numbers to happen. The fact that it was, it had a pulse, it just, it was like something so new, so fresh, kind of, if I may, what people feel about Hamilton today. Something yeah. you know, I've always said tools of the theater have been there since the Greeks. Right. Every generation things, technology improves, you can go indoors, mm-hmm. you can you know, have, right. have lights, electricity right. provides lights, you know, and computers provide set, I mean, it Everything gets added to it. But at the end of the day, the more theatrical you are, using those tools that are available, the better. Yeah. So I just, I just actually, I love companies so much that I wanted to be at the recording session because I just wanted to be there. And in fact, if you look at the, um, the, 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 the documentary, documentary no you, way. you see me lurking in the background. No way. Yes. It, the shot is of Hal Prince. I think he's sitting with a costume designer in the booth. And in the background, I'm looking out that way. My head is bobbing back and forth with too much hair and with a hideous plaid jacket. But right. nonetheless, I am I'm there. I'm totally so looking, looking for you. I'm totally looking jacket. for you. But again, but again, I wanted to be there. Yeah. I wanted to be a part of it. And I think in retrospect, what I can say is the best thing about the career that I've ended up having is that I didn't have a focus. 
I knew I wanted to be, you know, on the other side of the footlights. Right. I didn't want to be a performer. But I didn't know. I mean, somewhere producing, directing, somewhere in that side of it. Oh. But the fact that I just happened to, to, you know, to just take one step at a time. Right. Well, was it ever daunting to never, when you could do many different jobs, to decide which one? Did, was it ever, did you ever feel like you were spread thin, you know? Just no. trying to figure out which one of these things I want to do, or were you just happy to take any of them? No, no. Actually, <laughs> the, the real answer to that is, before I ever had to come to real come-to-Jesus moments about what my life was going to be like, yeah. something came up. <laughs> like the musical theater lab, which, yeah. uh, which I actually sold myself a job there because you know Stuart Ostro right. produced two unproducible musicals in a row Pippin which had been kicking around for years and was a college production anyway yeah. and 1776 who on earth wants a musical about signing the Declaration of Independence right. so Stuart who was a very enlightened producer made a success out of those two and he started the musical theater lab in the late 60s Oh wow! saying that the musical theater had its own development world within it but that world was being questioned and we need to step up and help the development of musical theater. What kind of programs, what kind of activities? Would well, you... he started He started with the Robert Bridegroom, was the first yeah. one that we've yeah. ever done. Now it's being done again by yeah. Roundabout. Yeah. What I did, the reason I got that job, I, well, I, to back up a little bit, yeah. when I left college, I had it moved sort of from the production assistant into being assistant to the director. Mm -hmm. And there was a production of Candide that was happening in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. My father was working with Leonard Bernstein at the time, and I said, who's directing it? And he said, Sheldon Patinkin. And I said, who's that? And he said, well, he's Second City and a friend of... I said, what? Candide, this show that people... It was be starting to bubble that this was yeah. a show worth taking a look at. Right. No, it's going to be Sheldon Patinkin. So I said, okay, does he need an assistant? So I became Sheldon Patinkin's assistant on that production of, of Candide. He was a, a pal of Alan Arkin's. And that's, I think, I think that's... the reason they hired Sheldon was they wanted Alan to play Pangloss because he'd sure. done it in a concert right. here for the New York Philharmonic. Yes. Anyway, so I met Alan Arkin yeah. on that and then he was directing the Sunshine Boys so he asked me to be his assistant. So I ended up, after that, I ended up working with Alan um, and he wanted to produce a show. We produced a show. It, it closed miserably out of town and I was on, out of work. So in the time of being out of work and I say this again now with perspective, being out of work is not necessarily the worst thing in your life because what 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 you're forced to do with you know to to, to keep your sanity, um, and but at, in that year I, I something occurred to me and I don't remember how it did but what occurred to me was in the 1950s there were all these adult camps in the Catskills and the Pocono, and they would hire talent and you know Tamament was one of them and Green Mansions was mm -hmm. another. Mm -hmm. Most of the musical theater writers in the 60s spent some time there. Right. Bach and Harnick were there. Um, uh, Strauss and Adams mm -hmm. were there. Um, Mary, Rogers Mary Rogers was there. there. Yeah. Once Upon a Mattress came pretty much lock, stock, and barrel mm -hmm. out of Tamament. So I thought, what a good idea for the Musical Theater Lab to do. Why don't we do a, a, a program where you have to do reviews? Because a lot of those things were, were reviews. Mm -hmm. Here's the cast. Here's the cast. Give them material. Right. The, the king in Once Upon a Mattress is mute because that summer there was a guy named Milt Kamen who kept telling everybody what a brilliant mime artiste he was. <laughs> so they said, fine, we'll write, you, we'll write you a part where you can show us what a great mime. That's awesome. You know, I mean, we, <laughs> yeah. one of the things we have to know about showbiz is so many things were, were written not because of artistic purity right. but because of practicality <laughs> of the situation. That's what I sold to, to Stuart. I said, let's do a program where we'll do reviews. So we gathered a bunch of writers, actors, directors, and sat the writers down and I said, okay, I want material. 
um, and and we did it for six weeks running. But the project had an energy that was yeah. unmistakable. Yeah. And actually, Mary Rogers came. We did one presentation or two presentations for audiences, mm-hmm. and I invited Mary Rogers because my parents knew her and I'd been at dinner and parties at her house, and I just thought, Mary Rogers, you're the coolest person on earth. You wrote <laughs> The Mad Show. <laughs> and, and, which ended up helping me a lot because when Richard Rogers, a year after Richard Rogers died, she, I got a call from her one day, out of the blue. What are you doing? I think they could use you at the Rogers and Hammerstein office. Here's the guy to call. You know, give him a call. Goodbye, I'll see you. That's what led to this 30-plus year career at Rogers and Hammerstein. And the reason wow. that she had thought of me was because of the musical theater lab. And she said, right. he, he makes creative things happen. Right. And what I subsequently found out is, you know, when Rogers died, Bill Hammerstein, oldest son of Oscar, had been kind of running the office while Rogers was, you know, in his later years. Because mm-hmm. he was, you know, he kept writing shows, but he wasn't a well man. So the Dorothy Rogers, widow of Richard Rogers, and Bill Hammerstein, even though Dorothy Hammerstein was still around, but she didn't really want to have part of it. But there were conversations about who might run the office that they knew about right. and checks came from. And um, they, they asked at least two people who were more advanced in their careers than I was at that time. And they had very grandiose ideas about what the part, what the role was, what the position was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I heard, uh, you know, cars to pick them up every morning, and and, oh, and, and you know, very fancy, and, and memberships in fancy clubs yes, and things like that. And, and it clearly kind of scared the, you know, Dorothy and Bill. Yeah. So as Mary said, when, when she was allowed to have a voice in the room, she said, you know, what about Skylar and Betty's son, Ted, yeah. ran the musical theater lab, really makes things, you know, it, make, it seems to be, a, you know, creative, makes creative things happen. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, what? That's hence the phone call. I didn't right. know that. So I went in and I thought, okay, I, I have no idea what this is. The idea was I'd sort of learn the ropes for a year and then take over. Right. And so I learned the ropes, and there were a lot of ropes to learn. Um, the, the coolest thing about it was my learning curve in some ways paralleled the learning curve of Dorothy Rogers, who was no pushover. Right. But, for example, there was and is a music publishing company that mm-hmm. was formed for Rogers and Hammerstein by the guys who ran Chapel Music, right. which was the, you know, the, the Broadway place. Is that Williamson? No. Williamson, Williamson Music, Williamson absolutely. Music, right. mm-hmm. um, and... It was owned ultimately 50% by the Rogers, 50% by the Hammersteins. Chapel Music was doing all the administration of it. Ah. But I had this idea one day, what if we actually hired a couple of people and ran it in-house? You know, there aren't a lot of sort of boutique publishing companies. The catalog we have is pretty pretty solid and very focused, yeah. Yeah. very clear what it is. Right. And so I would say in one of my monthly meetings with Dorothy Rogers and Bill Hammerson, <laughs> I said, you know you own a publishing company. And Dorothy said, oh, oh, that's Bob at the office, right? And I said, half right. Bob, yes, Bob is the one who you know, is our liaison with, with Chapel, but mm-hmm. we could bring it in-house. And in my eval- we, the accounting was a little sketchy at that point. So every time I asked how much does it actually cost us, to have Chapel do the administration, every time I asked, I got a different answer. And so, to their credit, and I, and I, you know, this is the kind of thing where the more I think back on how extraordinary my time here has been, I said to Dorothy and to Bill, "Listen, I cannot tell you that running Williamson Music Publishing Company in-house is going to be less expensive than it is now with Chapel." But what I can say is we don't have any idea what it would be like, you know, focusing only on this catalog. Mm-hmm. 
And, yeah. and Bill, to his credit, said, sure, and if it doesn't work, we can always go back to chapel. And I had found somebody that we'd been working with at chapel who I wanted to hire, mm-hmm. and with one assistant. So we hired these two people. When, 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 how long was, oh, ago God, was this? I don't remember. Probably in the mid... I mean, I started... I, t- I became the head of it in 83, so this was probably 85. Okay. Like that. All right. So, yeah. Great. And Maxine Lang, her name was, is. Uh, she's no longer working here, but she's certainly hale and hearty. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came in, and she made a foreign, dis- foreign deal for the catalog because we would, we would run it domestically here, but mm-hmm. he, she, would, she made a foreign deal with a big publisher with a $2 million advance, and we never looked back. Yay! Nicely done. No, and so when Irving, for example, when Irving Berlin died, right. and that family was in the similar situation where they didn't know what to do because Irving Berlin had a reputation, which I think was well-earned, yes. of being very particular about what he didn't want to happen. Um, and, and actually, I had had a conversation with, with not one of the daughters, but one of the husbands of the mm-hmm. daughter saying, when the old man dies, don't sell that catalog because everybody knows that the catalog hasn't been used properly. Yeah. And, you know, they will, if someone's going to buy it, they're only going to base the price on what the last four or five years have been. And everybody knows there's more. Way more. There's mm-hmm. more to be done. I said, let us, you know, do that with you. So we were able to take on Irving Berlin Soup to Nuts. And having that music publishing thing was able, we were able to go, Irving Berlin Music Company. <laughs> Now yeah. you, oh you're administered by yeah. Williamson Look, Music. we've done it so well already. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Wow. And the theater thing. And we've created some show. I mean, White Christmas was a creation. Holiday Inn is coming to the roundabout. Yeah. You know, part of the fun here, again, part of the fun of having a little bit of a lot of things yeah. is, you know, create a new Irving Berlin show. Sure. Why yeah. not? Let's yeah. see. You know, and as you know, and as anybody listening to this will learn if they don't know, putting on any new musical is in incredibly hard we i mean that white christmas i mean th- this is again a little bit of an example um paul blake was running the st louis muni mm-hmm. he was also he somehow had gotten to know people at paramount pictures so he had talked paramount pictures people into doing stage versions of movies and this now now every studio has a department for this but yeah. not right. so not so yeah. then yeah. and so i got the call what about white christmas mm-hmm. and i and, and he said i will you know i paul blake want to do the adaptation and i'll do it at the st louis muni so I said to one of my, to the Berlin ladies in one of my meetings, what about Why Christmas? And to a woman, they said, why that movie? <laughs> and I said, very simply, because the studio is interested. Right. You know, and if we like another movie, we, if we could spend years trying to get their attention. So, and, and I said, I love Paul dearly, but I know that an adaptation that takes him a year or three years is going to be the same. Uh-huh. So let's push him to do it right away. So he did a production at the St. Louis Muni one summer. Uh-huh. There was a show there because there was an arc. Interestingly, again, for those of you interested in developing mm-hmm. shows, it's a frivolous story, clearly. It's mm-hmm. not, I mean, it's, it's a song and, pair of song and dance men who meet sisters. <laughs> I ask you, how is that story going to come out? <laughs> but but the, because the guys were in the army... The arc to the story that everybody felt was worth pursuing is giving the general back his dignity. Right. And that's True. a plot to it because mm-hmm. they, when they find him up in the inn in Vermont and they say, we're, we're going to give him back his yeah. dignity. And that's, that was enough of a sort of dramatic arc. You know, to, yeah. It's sort of like Mamma Mia and it's who universal. was my father. Yeah, yeah. totally. You know, who was my father is a very emotionally yeah. rich idea. So it, it took a while and then it got in the hands of Kevin McCollum who... Yeah 
who very cleverly took kept Paul on, but brought in Walter Bobby and brought in David Ives yeah. and put together a show that uh, there are elements of what was at the Muni, but there is very very important elements that make it, a, you know, a, a show that we license all the time. And yeah, basically, what they theaters. did was they took these two couples and they made one sort of total goo goo eyes at each other. They're mm-hmm. just like silly. You know, and they're the big dancing ones, and that they can do the they can do the fantasy dance, mm-hmm. which is great. But then, really, manage to create the other one, so there's problems. Mm-hmm. So there are moments where you really wonder if they are going to get together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, you know, in in dramatic construction, it's tricky to do, especially if you meet right. Song of Dance Men's sisters. You know, it's going to come out right, but there are moments when you really aren't. aren't, you know, aren't it's sure. a great yeah. adaptation. Oh yeah. yeah, it really is, and a reason why it's being done it's continually. I mean, it's, for years and years. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing and funny that that um, Holiday Inn there, there's this perception that it's competitive and there are similarities there are things about the movie of Holiday Inn which right. came first I mean it is where what the song White Christmas was first introduced yeah. right, right. and when we started to talk with now Universal which happens <laughs> to now own Holiday Inn although it was a Paramount picture right. to begin with don't go there wow um, you know what I said to, to the very smart guy at, at Universal is you you can use White Christmas as it is in the movie of Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby at the piano because right. it's kind of iconic, but that's it. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to the show White Christmas. Yeah. No, the overture is not going to start with White Christmas. It'll right. simply be a confusion in the marketplace. Yeah. So we, we're, one of the challenges of Holiday Inn is, in fact, to make it not feel competitive with White Christmas. Yeah. Do you get a lot of odd requests and what i mean by that is is we would like to do oklahoma but we're going to set it in 1950s ireland do you get any of those he sighs <laughs> um, the it, cease and desist side the, of, uh, the, the, of your department yeah, the the answer the reason the reason why this is a little tricky is that we happen to be involved in a couple about oklahoma right now oh, oh. It, it sort of comes in waves i think what i find interesting about oklahoma and there are i mean there was a production at bard college that was done last summer okay. last yes summer, yeah yeah which is to talked about finding a proper home here somewhere out of the out of the way it's a very downtown kind of production but I, what i have found is for the most part if the people who are asking this are people of integrity and and if there's some background i mean again i hate to say this to young artists starting out but probably you're not going to get the permission to do something that's slightly wacky Mm -hmm. um so this oklahoma at bard was fascinating and the way and also there were meetings describing what they wanted to do what the point of it was and all that stuff can you give us like a two-sentence rundown of what made it so yeah uh, it was uh, i don't know anything about it myself first of all it was done with a very small cast Uh and they they adapted the orchestrations to kind of a hootenanny band oh cool um, it was done wow. in in a room, in a so that the audience sat around the outside of the room, and all the, the action took place in the middle. Because the idea was a communal experience, mm. there was chili being cooked on all these tables, oh. and and then the audience was offered chili in the intermission. That's nice. Um, which became, from my standpoint, the least interesting thing about the whole thing, and the chili wasn't any good. Yeah. But be that as it may, it wasn't a dinner <laughs> theater production actually. But having done that, and sort of the idea to sort of strip strip the show any sort of if i may musical comedy artifice yeah, yeah. Which i don't think there's a lot of in that show no. but you know just to sort of get into the grit mm-hmm. um i mean the, when i saw again i was invited to a rehearsal and i the one note that i gave to the director was you know how are you going to tell the audience that there's humor 
Um, and frankly, there wasn't a lot of humor to be had. And it's not really what the guy, Daniel Fish, the director, he, that's not what he's really about. Mm-hmm. But it, it illuminated things in the text that were absolutely fascinating. So, yeah. you, you know, you, you were aware of things. Um, the scene with Judd, for example, was done in darkness, complete darkness like, with a video camera. And, you know, these video cameras today, you know, you don't, I mean, there was no light and you could, and there were images yeah. that were, there were, and it was dangerous. I mean, and I think the idea of doing it that way was that that's a dangerous scene. Yeah. That's the scene where Curly threatens, yeah. not threatens, yeah. but, but Curly, well, yeah. Confrontation, risks, yeah. He, yeah. It's a real risky confrontation. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so, so that was, that was, that was there. Yeah. Um, again, my concern is, you know, that's a very intimate, it's, a, it's very intimate having two people that close. And yeah. I'm not sure that that's an, in, that's not an intimate scene. It's a, you know, but can you get that, that you know, there, and there are a couple of ideas that I don't think are good and where, where, that I don't think are good, by which I mean, not that I didn't like them, right. but I think my responsibility is to try to honor what I think these two guys wrote. Yeah. Uh, and if there are things where, and again, it's a, ju- a, lot of these, a lot of these are judgment calls. And, you know, if there's, you know, I mean, I'll tell you because people who saw it saw this. At the end, when Judd comes back, the lines that are there are, you know, he, he gives, he has a gift. And it's the little wonder which has the yeah. has the blade, mm-hmm. and that and so there there he's stopped from you know but then they have a, a you know they tussle and right. he gets stabbed. Yeah. In this production, the gift is a box, and you open it, and it is Curly's gun that he has had to sell. I mean, it's a gun, and the the idea is it's the gun that he's had to sell in order to get Laurie. He takes up the gun and shoots Judd. Just oh, just just right in cold blooded murder, and he's you know a lot of blood, very effective splattering blood. And and I, I mean, I can I can understand the sort of the idea that the community is complicit in all this and all that kind of stuff. But in this day and age, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Um, Also, he gets away with it boldly. Yeah. In the script. Yeah. Right. There's the little. It's one thing if it was an accident. It's another thing if it was everybody in every witness to this saw that it's uh, it's pretty hard. I mean, yes, there's OJ, but this is really. No, it's great. So we're having interesting conversations. If you're being that real, then you have to give those circumstances. But in a funny way, the other side of that spectrum is the production of The Sound of Music that's out touring now. Yeah. And I say that because because. All of the big Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, um, plus Cinderella and Flower Drum Song, have been brought back in my time here um, mm-hmm. in, a, in, in fascinating productions. Mm-hmm. The Sound of Music production that was on Broadway in 1998 wasn't successful, frankly. Right. So in a way, The Sound of Music has been the one dangling, you know, it, it, and, and uh, you know, are we going to make it threatening and add more Nazi? I, I don't know. I mean, why, why do you think that is? That, well, I mean, is I, it because everyone expects the movie? Yeah, I think and, it's, I mean, pure, obviously, it's, I think it's I mean, pure and simple. You know, they, they, people get nervous about, uh, you know, what is this, you know, what is this, what is my favorite things doing with the Mother Abbess and, and Maria in the first right. scene? It's supposed to be in the bedroom. Yeah. Right. Well, it's like, well, actually, in the show, in the bedroom, it's thundering and lightning, so the song that she sings 
is an umpapa loud song called makes, my the, you know the lonely goat herd makes sense. to drown out the thunder yeah. so so anyway but this is for many years this has been kind of a fruitless then i found out that jack o'brien man who has won three tony awards for hairspray henry the fourth and coast of utopia i mean and i ask there is the man to direct the sound of music um he has loved the sound of music since he as a kid saw mary martin and networks touring people wanted to do a production so part of my role here was i i put them together because you know jack o'brien doesn't do tours networks doesn't hire people like jack o'brien and i said let's not say no let's put this all together um and so you know the production of the sound of music with the exception of the song something good Mm -hmm. but even that has been tweaked somewhat this is the version of the show that was on Broadway in 1959. And I put before you the following moment that explains to you what a good director can do to The Sound of Music. Uh In the scene in the bedroom, she starts by praying and she can't remember one of the kids' names. Liesl comes in the window, she's right, they have their little scene, Liesl goes off to change clothes. Yesterday I said I didn't need a governess, maybe I do. Nice little moment. Yeah. Thunder, girls come in, you know, thunder, thunder, you know, maybe the boys are going to come in. Right. You know, oh, no, no, boys are brave. Thunder, in come the boys. Funny moment. Funny yeah. moment. Um, she has, she says, Friedrich, was this your idea? He says, no, this was Kurt's idea. Ah, Kurt, that's the name she was missing. You know, the line is there to give her the name. Mm-hmm. God bless Kurt. But her line is, Friedrich, was this your idea? What? That everybody should run in the bedroom when it's done? Yeah. So in this production... Boy, are boys going to come? No, boys are brave. They won't. Thunderclap, the two boys are under the bed. Was this your idea? Genius. Genius. Well, but the thing is, it's a good director looking at the words. Right. And yes. You know, and, and the opening, it's funny, I just did the Playbill Cruise, which, you know, oh, Phil, yeah. Phil Birch decided to theme to Rodgers and Hammerstein, so, and I was asked to give a talk, and one of the things I brought was B-roll of Kristen Anderson, the 21-year-old who was playing Maria on this tour, singing oh, yeah. the title song. Oh. And, you know, the enti- I just put it in and look at it, because it, first of all, she has a little bridge over a stream, because, yes, she is up in the mountains. Jack said in rehearsal, this is your soliloquy. Usually in classic theater, soliloquy comes after we've gotten to know the character. Mm -hmm. But the innovation of this show is this is the only time you talk to the audience, and it's right up front. Right at the start. So your introduction to us. And then he said, and you're in a place where you can see all of Austria, and we can see none of it. So you have to show us and tell us what you see. It's such a beautiful performance. And she's on this little bridge, and she then steps off the little bridge. That's, that's That's the staging of the number. But the way what she's singing... I mean, one of the, of the early reviews of this tour said, you know, when she said, I come to the hills when my heart is lonely, mm-hmm. and the reviewer said, she looked troubled. And it was like, right. All again, again, you know, part of the, a mantra from my job at Rogers and Hammerstein, I've always said, if you're good to Rogers and Hammerstein, they're very good to you. <laughs> you, you take Rogers and Hammerstein as the, the rough blueprint for a show that you need to create, you're in trouble. I mean, aside from the fact that to your earlier question, we're not terribly encouraging of that, but if you start to, and Trevor Nunn did this once, if you start to pull these shows apart and put them in a different order, they simply don't work. No, you can't do that. So, Interesting. Have it's, respect. It's all yeah. there. It's yeah. all there. You just need to. I mean, they were consummate. You need to honor it. You know, they were consummate men of the theaters. I mean, the, the theater. I mean, they, that's. I've been here long enough, and I've dealt with these properties long enough that I've come to have an unbelievable respect for them mm-hmm. because they, they work as theater pieces. Yeah. They're the way the stories are told. Um, you know, the King and I that's up at, at Lincoln yeah. Center, especially with Hoon Lee, who's in it now. He gets every laugh 
that there is for the king. Yeah. And you don't think of the king and I as a humorous show, and it's not. It's rather stately. You know, but the genius, of, for example, in the last scene, when the king is dying and Mrs. Anna has come back and she's going to be leaving and is she going to stay? You know, there's a lot of tension going on. And he knows, the king knows that he has to turn it over to Prince Chula Longhorn, who's going to become the new king, and right. says, you know, when, when you know, what, what are you going to have? And he says, I'm, you know, I'm going to have boat races. I mean, in the royal celebrations, and yeah. boat races. And the king says, why boat races? And he says, because I like boat races. <laughs> And it's just a moment, but the audience can laugh in, yeah. a, in, a, in, a, in a sweet, not big, but just, just, a, just a way that makes the, the dramatic tension of what follows wow. just palatable in a way. I mean, he was a, he was a genius that way. Yeah. And they're sort of all through the shows where things are, you know, seem unexpected, and yet, you know, they really, they really work. Oh yeah, Billy Bigelow looking at the guy at the you know at the graduation, saying that I, that I recognize that guy. Yeah, you know, usually that's a corny thing to do, but in the way that Carousel is constructed, it makes absolute sense that the yeah. same guy who's no, you know totally. up, up there is now down here. Yeah, can I ask you about one of my favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein shows that doesn't get done a lot? You certainly may. Me and Juliet. Me and Juliet. I mean, I think it's an encores candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it comes up from time to time. Again, because, as you point out, I'm on every committee, you know, that there is to, you know, to, to be on. Yes. Thank God that Many you rooms are. that it's well, happening Well, but I have in. to be careful. I have to be careful which hat I'm wearing at, at, at one time. That's, um, you yeah, know, and, that's and, true. And to sort of, to drop in the idea of me and Juliet into the encores conversation at the right time so it can be their idea, you know, is... You know, it, it's time, frankly. Yeah. It's time for it. I mean, I mean, what I what I would say about it is, um, and it's also part of what I've seen my job to be, is it doesn't have any visibility these days. It hasn't been done in years. I mean, I think the Mufti series did it at York. Um, so, it's, so in order for people to become acquainted with it, we'd have to do something. We'd have to. It's again, it's part of why Encores is very helpful because it gives it gives a, a visibility to a show from the past with hopefully its strengths put forward first. And if there are weaknesses, that they are, they are minimized mm-hmm. by the nature of what, um, what Encores is all about. I mean, Cabin in the Sky, the first one they did this year was, to me, like a living history lesson Truly. about what was going on in the 40s. It also makes me appreciate Oklahoma more because you mm-hmm. realize, you know, I mean, I grew up saying with people telling me Oklahoma was the revolution and I could never figure that out right. because it didn't seem revolutionary at all. But when you see Cabin in the Sky and you see these bold ideas, good versus evil and right. the devil's man and the God's man mm-hmm. and that, you know, and you realize it's c- kind of dramatically inept, yes. but they're going for something, yeah. you know, and that's why, oh, well, Oklahoma managed to take all of those ideas that people were were playing with and put it all together so that it's not that it's a it's an earth-shatteringly grand big story it's the way the drama is told through music and lyrics and dance and libretto and characters and that's kind of the integration that everybody was was, was, was trying so so i think me and juliet would have to be made more visible you know, and I think you know, in its day, it was it was well, it was Richard Rogers' idea. Allegro was Hammerstein's idea, and this was Rogers' idea to write a musical comedy. 
to go back sort of mm-hmm. to write a show, the kind of show that happened before Rodgers and Hammerstein. Right. And I think they didn't feel as if they had conquered it. It maybe got a little, you know, serious or something. I'm not really sure. I, that, that's the only time I've ever seen it yeah. was it at the York. Interesting. But I think I think it would be good. It's also, it's a Don Walker orchestration. It's a jazzy orchestration. Yeah. Great orchestration. You know? um, so colleges, please. <laughs> and people who have seen Cinderella might be very, if you listen very, very carefully, you'll hear the music from the opening song in Cinderella, um, which the music still stays there. The lyrics do not. Me, who am I, it's called. And it's for okay. the prince on his horseback. You, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Because I, I, I will say this about C- Cinderella. In the answer of, you know, how yeah. big is that trunk? Yeah. The answer is not big. Okay. But when Douglas Carter Bean started to put that, that production together, he came in here and had some ideas, wanted to hear everything. And he was the smartest writer I've dealt with in terms of what, what was interesting and what wasn't. He knew, first of all, you don't put Some Enchanted Evening in the middle of another. You don't put a, sh- a song in a show that will take the audience out of it. Right. So, yeah. so that, that what, what appealed to him were songs... You know, I, there were a couple that were cut from South Pacific, one that was cut from King and I, that one that was cut from Me and Juliet. Yeah. There was some help with the lyrics, and that was fine. The, uh, the big ballad in the second act, There's Music in You, comes from a terrible movie called the Main Street to Broadway. Wow. Which, it's a very funny, bad movie. Watch it if you can find it. It's about Broadway, in quotes, <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> but it does have a shot, for example, of Al Hirschfeld drawing. I mean, it's a lot of Broadway oh, stuff in there. Oh, that's cool. But the scene where There's Music in You comes from is... Mary Martin being directed by Joshua Logan in the new Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. And Josh Logan is rehearsing this song and Mary's having some problems with how to do the song. Uh, anyway, so, wow. so we, we pulled that one out for the, for the television remake of Cinderella in 1997 to give Whitney Houston a power ballad. Just, again, Bruce Pomahack, who for years was the director of music here and absolutely brilliant, took a few lines from Allegro. Yeah. And, then, you know, and, and actually now it can be told in Cinderella... In, when it was in rehearsal, Vicki Clark was having problems getting into that song. Um, and, and there was conversation. And, and Bruce, because he is incredibly knowledgeable about Richard Rodgers and the canon and is a composer himself. Yeah. One morning he said to me, come listen to this. And he put music on the And he played the verse to There's Music in You, which is currently in the show. Yeah. And I said, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And he looked at me and he said, if they ask, did I find it? The answer is Yes. If the truth, did I write it? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually completely Bruce. I mean, but it's, it, again, it doesn't sound. No. Yeah, the other thing totally. he did recently, and I had to push him on this, um, but it's kind of fun, and now it's sort of making the mini rounds. Josh Logan, in his, in his uh, autobiography, talked about the first song that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote for Lieutenant Cable, mm-hmm. a song he said was called My Friend. And he said, and he quotes the lyrics in his book, my friend, my friend is coming around the bend. When I was first here, Josh said, do you have that song? Because I, I you know, I can't right. find it. I don't, I don't remember, but I remember it. I remember it, and it was terrible. <laughs> um, so the first thing that happened was when Lincoln Center was doing South Pacific, they had a couple of very specific questions about lyrics that they asked me. So I came in one morning and looked through a lot of scripts that I had um, pulled together and you know, various things. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to look through every script. And there was one that I had assumed came from Bill Hammerstein. It, I had assumed was just another version of, this, of the playing script I went mm-hmm. into rehearsal with. It just was a clean one that mm-hmm. hadn't been used. 
turned out to be a draft of Act One. Oh. And there were the entire lyrics of my friend. I mean, unfortunately, Josh Logan had died by this point, but I was like, oh my God. He was right. The Holy <laughs> Grail. Right. And what's really interesting is that the song, yes, it's called My Friend. And yes, there is a lyric buried in it about coming around the bend. But what inspires the song is after Liat and Cable make love, Liat, who knows very little English, right. says to Lieutenant Cable, you are my friend? And he says, oh, no. You know, she thinks that's the, that's the phrase for when you've made love, you're now friends. Right. So that's what inspired the song, My Friend. Then we found one sheet of music at the Library of Congress with Richard Rogers' hand at the top that says, My Friend, and a melody, no chords, and at the bottom, a strange sort of release. Well, once we've got the lyrics, we could figure this all mm-hmm, out, mm-hmm. but no chords. Oh. So I said to Bruce, Bruce, Make like Richard Rogers. <laughs> Make the chords. And he did it. And actually, I did it wow. at the lyrics. And, and lyrics. Yeah. And actually, Kathleen Marshall used it this year in hers about songs that were cut out of town. Oh, nice. And what's, what's interesting about it is you listen to it, and it, you should add it to your repertoire. Yeah. Then you go into so- Suddenly Lucky. Yeah. And then you go, then you, if you can nail Younger Than Springtime, right. then you can do this because the audiences love this stuff. Yeah. The thing is, you listen to it, and it's a perfectly fine I mean, those guys knew what they were doing. They were in this, their stride. So it's a perfectly fine. And it actually, there's some surprising things. The melody doesn't go sometimes where you expect it to right. go. That, and that kind of stuff. It's yeah. just not, and that what, Logan, what Josh Logan said is it's not passionate enough. Right. You know, and that's what he kept pushing. And that's why Suddenly Lucky, which was the melody that became Getting to Know You, you know, Logan said, well, that's better, but he's a Marine, for God's sake. Yeah. Which is why Younger Than Springtime is nothing but passion. I'm so fast. I'm fascinated by, you know, you've got Roger Hammerstein. Uh, they, they knew what they were doing, but right. the, uh, the collaboration with the director and how important yeah. that was with their process. Right. I, I never realized that they well, were so driven with the director helping well, okay, them. Okay, put the, but put South Pacific in, in perspective, which I always think is fascinating. Oklahoma hit big. Right. You know, they were still working. I mean, there were, there were problems with with Rogers and Hart, with mm-hmm. Hart. Well, there yeah. were problems with Kern and Hammerstein, but right. both Jerome Kern and, and the, Lorenz Hart were still alive right. and allowed their partners to, to do this one-off show for the theater guild. Right. It became Oklahoma. Boom. You know, uh-oh. Suddenly right. there's a team and they liked working together. Yeah, and so, their work is really good. I mean, can you imagine really being good. those other guys? I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting and, and it's interesting that both Lorenz Hart and Jerome Kern died shortly afterwards it's Both around productions that Rogers and Hammerstein were dealing with. Yeah, I think that Hart's. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's no, sad. It's, it's, I mean, it's, but you know, whatever the whatever the big picture is here, somebody sort of you know, right. Anyway, Sorry. so they followed Oklahoma with Carousel, which mm-hmm. was arguably more dramatic, more operatic, right. and then they they wrote Allegro, which was their original, you know, sort of the innovators uh, innovating now, mm-hmm. and it wasn't successful. Right. Okay, so here you are, this team that's enjoyed these two successes and this one failure. Right. What do you do? Yeah. You load the deck. They took in South Pacific a contemporary story. Yeah. They wrote it for a star yeah. and a handsome stranger from another world, Sio yeah. Pinza. You take on Josh Logan, a formidable you know, collaborator, yeah. you know, and you, you need that show to be a hit or... The team may that may have been it, right. you know, and 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 it hit bigger than than Oklahoma or Carousel. I yeah. mean, it, it just happened because it was contemporary, because it had the post-war emotional oomph for the audience. Um, it won more awards. It, it just yeah. it hit the town like crazy. And then they followed up with King and I, that everybody said, well, it's good, but it's not South Pacific. You know, 
Oh, yeah, I remember that now. Do you want to ask about your favorite person, Trudy Rittman? I've had this, this dream that I want the world to know who Trudy Rittman is more. Than, oh, so do we. You and, know, put her, and, and, and put her second N on the end of her name. Yes, please. Yeah. No, I, I don't, may have told you this story, yeah. but since we're out, we have a microphone in, in front of us, <laughs> our microphone's in front of us. Um, I, I did a rapprochement with, with uh, Agnes DeMille and my RNH because she was angry at Rodgers and Hammerstein and felt that they didn't treat her properly. And what she really wanted was to be considered an author of Oklahoma and Carousel because she felt that what she brought to those ballets um, told the story and she wanted to be acknowledged. And of course, yeah. to, to give a choreographer credit and money as one of the authors is a very tricky thing. Yeah. And it's a precedent that if you set it, you could, Frankly, give it to people who don't deserve do it, and that's not where you draw the line. So, I saw a production of Carousel at the Houston Grand Opera in my early days. Here it was the first time I'd ever seen the Agnes DeMille choreography actually mounted by Jemsey Delap, um, and well done. And mm. it was it was just eye opening to me because I'd always thought of Agnes DeMille as the sort of cliche steps that you know you think about, right. and I didn't realize they were they came right out of character. All those steps were secondary. It mm -hmm. was like, oh my God, this real. I, I now see for the first time how these, the people who are on in the story, are, are translated into dance. And right. So I came back and I said to Dorothy Rogers and Bill Hammerstein, and I think at that time, their successors, Mary Rogers and James Hammerstein, were in the room of our monthly meetings. I said, you know, I think we're cutting off our nose to spite our face here, and, and there is Agnes de Mille living down in the village, angry at us, and has been for years. Um, but why don't we? pay her to document her dance. We also own her dances. That's right. another thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why don't we pay her to document them? Because once she's gone, you know, and, you know, her acolytes are not getting any younger. Yeah. Um, and so I wrote her a letter, and, I, and she called me before I could call her, and it was a very spicy conversation on the oh phone, but I gosh. went down to see her. And it was a great, I mean, it was one of the great days of my life, including, you know, I, the two things I remember, she, I, mean, I remember a lot, but she said, does Dorothy Rogers know you're here? And I said, yes, she does. And she would look away scowling. But, um, but I said, you know, Mr. Mill, you really need to tell us what, the, not the steps. I'm not interested in the steps. That's, that's, but what are the, what's the point of these dances? Yeah. And I said, there's some gesture in Juna's bust and not all over. She said, well, it's the dew falling off the leaves because it's springtime and the women are opening themselves up for spring. And I said, oh, you have to tell us that. Yeah. And she said, do you want me to condescend? I said, please. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was a, a, a lovely meeting. But I said to her, what happened? To, where is Trudy Rittman? And she looked at me and said, if you reach out to Trudy Rittman, you better have something to say because Richard Rogers broke her soul. <gasps> so that was a curse. However, we then found that Trudy Rittman was actually living in Boston in one of those wonderful places that has apartments and townhouses on one end and a nursing home at the other. And I should pause just to let her, I mean, Trudy Rittman did all the dance in incidental music. She was... And vocal arrangements. And vocal arrangements for a plethora of Rogers', Rogers shows. And, and she was... Her music is, is stunning on it. And Absolutely learn, stunning. And Lerner and Lowe as well. And Lerner and Lowe, that's right. And she was, that's all right. No, she, she, was, she was a German pianist yeah. who had to get out of Germany. Yeah. She connected with Agnes DeMille as a rehearsal pianist. Mm -hmm. And she, she, was a, she was a wonderful musician in her own right. Yeah. I mean, she composed the music for The Small House of Uncle Thomas. You know, on the, on the one hand, I think one has to be fair to say that Richard Rogers trusted her enough to do that. Yes. And Jerome Robbins understood what that was all about. You know, there, Hello Young Lovers is the only theme that's recognizable that's in there, but you can actually take some other things that are in there and realize that they're inversions of some. Mm -hmm. I mean, she knew as a dance arranger how 
her her voice was as an arranger, not as a not as the composer, a composer, but an arranger composer. Right. Um, we took her, Bruce Pomack and I went up and took her to two productions that were touring the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. One of them was the, the King and I from 1996, the Australian production with all the, yeah. the red and gold oh, yes. elephants. And when the curtain went up, she did lean over and say, this is awfully overproduced. <laughs> But she was wonderful, and I think again part of what part of what I feel my task turned out to be was to give some dignity to people who had felt kind of pushed aside as yeah. the years went on, you know. And and Agnes DeMille, Josh Logan, and Trudy Ripman are really the three biggest ones of those. Yeah. Um, and and it was interesting. Trudy was very reluctant to answer direct questions. But we'd put her in the car and drive from Brookhaven, it was called, outside yeah. Boston, down to downtown Boston. And we'd just ask her questions. And I remember once she just said, you know, I don't think Dorothy Rogers liked me very much. Uh. Because I don't think she liked strong women that Dick had you know, any kind of relationship with. Sure. Sure. Um, which I thought was that was kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. You know, and and she she was she was just amazing. I we I, I actually just um, we were uncovering some of her scores, and I had all of her scores from Allegro, which had a lot of dance in it. And what I found fascinating is these are penciled manuscript. They look like nobody ever looked at them. So I, and I thought, I wonder what in what form these went to Robert Russell Bennett, the orchestrator. Um, I mean, they had to get passed around. Right. They didn't Why? have photocopying then. And I don't. The answer is I don't really know. I mean, there are some copies of these things that were made by some process. Yeah. But the fact that these are all tidy, you know, and like you know, so I that could go. Do not pass go to the Library of Congress where people can study these things. Right. Interesting. And it, her her score. Here's another interesting thing. Her yeah. score of The Small House of Uncle Thomas mm -hmm. is dated, at the end of it, it's dated, and the date is a week before the show opened in New Haven. And then she writes, Gott sei Dank, German, you know, for sort of, I, yeah, I, it's so done, done, thank it's God. Done. Yeah. And within it, there are these wonderful little moments, you know, to, to Robert Russell Bennett, Russell mon cher, this here is a deep, dark forest. You know, just little notes, <laughs> yeah, little just notes. Little, like, hints. That, just hints. Yeah. Just, oh, you know, but again, again, in the heyday, certainly the Rodgers and Hammerstein heyday, there, were, there was this team. I mean, you can't write nine shows for Broadway in 16 years yeah, no. and do it all yourself. And if you have a team you rely on, who, you know, who you trust, you know, then you got to rely on them. Right. I mean, I'll tell you another interesting, silly little thing that came yeah. up when Bruce Pomahek was restoring the score of South Pacific. He came to me one day and he said, look at this, in the overture of South Pacific, when wonderful guy comes in, the melody in the overture goes bum, 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 ba, da, 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 bum, bum. But in the song, it's bum, 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 I'm as corny as it's three notes. But in the overture, it was umpa, bum, 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 bum. So he, he said, Bruce said to me, so it's, quote, wrong. And he said, and look, on the full score, from top to bottom, it's done that way, huh. twice. Every part, it's done that way. Richard Rogers heard it originally, he heard it on the album, he heard it through the years. Are we to declare this wrong right. <laughs> and go in and change it? I think John McGlynn at that time wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. And Bruce and I had this wonderful conversation. I said, okay, no, we're not. 
because we're going to take the position that the composer and the arranger had ample opportunity to listen to this and make the correction. Mm -hmm. Right. Now I'm going to tell you what my theory is. <laughs> my theory is Robert Russell Bennett was smart enough to understand that to introduce that melody to an audience that had never heard it, hence the overture, mm -hmm. the important part was to get the umpapa nature right. a, 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 across. And that's why he was enough of, of a musician to, we'll, we'll, fig, we'll do it right when she's singing and when there are words to it. Right. But to get it started. Still get the energy, it. yeah. That's but but that's, those are the judgment calls. The, 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 yeah. That's what makes my life interesting because, you know, do we go, I would have the ability to go in and change, change it. And, you know, because we now, you know, the scores are now on computers yeah. and oh, yeah. Just, like that. Uh, you know, but when you listen to the original cast album carefully and you listen here and you listen there and you even listen, even listen in the case of South Pacific to the really good recording of the 1967 Lincoln Center version yes. that Giorgio yeah. Tazzi and Florence Henderson produced incidentally by Edward Kleban, lyricist of chorus line. It was. It, yeah. I didn't oh, know. He was a very good record producer. But it's right, you know, it's, it's the same way it was all the way along. And, you know, so, no and, you knows. know, who knows? At one point, yeah, could one have been point, a small little conversation they had. Said, yeah, Russell, you know that's Why'd not that? that's not the melody. And Russell could have said, "Yeah, but I figured, you know." And like, yeah. oh, all right, it'll cost wow. too much to recopy it. Ah, eh, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Ted, thank you so much for yeah, spending. You all day. Sure, I, I love I it. Know, I love it. Please. <laughs> Join us next week when we're going to interview my favorite music conductor of all time, Don Pippin. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.